Let's continue to worship, shall we, by turning in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17, if you need a copy of God's Word, just get the attention of one of the ushers as they come down the aisle, and they will be sure to get a copy of God's Word into your hands. Thankful for Cody's words regarding Passion Week coming up. I've been just preparing in my own heart and mind, and we encourage you to be doing so as well, which simply involves thinking about the events of Passion Week, the events of Christ's suffering. Passion is an old word for suffering, simply means suffering. The week of Jesus from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday with Good Friday in between and all the events that took place, good to prepare our hearts. It's the major point, the major foundation on which our entire faith rests. And we would do well to mark it well in our hearts and souls and ask the Lord to reveal more and more of himself to us as these weeks come up and as these days go by. Don't miss a single Easter. And don't miss making the most of a single Easter in your life. It may be the very last Easter that you ever encounter. You may have many more, but for most of us, the most we're going to have is like some 80. How, how many is that? A drop in the bucket, proverbially speaking, a drop in the bucket compared to all eternity and all that Easter is worth. And so I just encourage you to be in prayer, to be in your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ as these weeks come up and especially this next week as we approach Palm Sunday. But I get ahead of myself. Revelation chapter 17 is the text that we're in. We're in the middle of a mini-series here, of course, in our study of the book of Revelation about the culture that we should expect in the great tribulation. The culture. A culture the Apostle John calls the great prostitute or Babylon the Great. Hence the title, The Rise and Fall of Babylon. And so far we found that the great prostitute is Babylon the Great. Both represent a worldwide culture of debauchery, luxury, and persecution. And in the Great Tribulation, the Antichrist will use the prostitute to influence the world. He'll use the culture of power and pleasure to subjugate and control the world. Don't be confused. Don't be naive. And don't be surprised, especially so since it's a culture that's already started. Really, as I mentioned last week, one of the biggest indicators that the end times are near. How near? I have no idea. But certainly far nearer than they were even a decade ago or a half a century ago. The culture of Babylon the Great, talked about in these two chapters, chapter 17 and 18 of Revelation, has already begun. But there's one more truth in verse 6. Having covered all of that in verses 1 to 6, there's one more truth in verse 6 that we can't afford to miss. And it's this. The combination of power and pleasure will be deadly for believers. The combination of power and pleasure in the great tribulation will be deadly for believers. After seeing the great prostitute indulging with the world and the beast in verses 1 to 5, the Apostle John says in verse 6, check it out, And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs 
of Jesus, the witnesses of Jesus who were killed for their faith. Quite the graphic vision and the result of a deadly combination, power from the Antichrist and pleasure from the prostitute. One to overwhelm by force and the other to overcome with temptation. Both equally powerful and both leading to so much death that the great prostitute, it says here, will be drunk on it. Delirious with the death of believers. Heady. Swimming in it. We saw the power part of that last week under the label of persecution, didn't we? Persecution, where the hatred of the culture and the power of the Antichrist will lead to death for many believers. Not all, but many. But that's only part of the combination. That's only part of it. The other part is the deadly effect of sexual immorality itself. Made clear in passages like Proverbs chapter 5. Where Solomon says, incline your ear, for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. And her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. And just in case we don't get that metaphor, Solomon goes on in verse 5 and he says, her feet go down to death. Her influence sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol, the grave. Sexual immorality itself leads to death. Itself. And Proverbs 7 says, regarding a man who entertains it, with much seductive speech, she persuades him, real or imaginary, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. He does not know that it will cost him his life. Indulging in sexual pleasure outside of marriage or apart from the marriage bed is deadly. Right now, in and of itself, it's deadly. It kills. It kills the soul. It kills the countenance. It kills the life in you. It takes the life from you. It leaves you empty. It leaves you lifeless. Sexual immorality in and of itself is deadly right now. But in the great tribulation, it's going to be even worse. I, I can't even imagine it. But that's what the word of God implies here. It's going to be even worse. When it's combined with the abusive power of the Antichrist and a widespread culture of debauchery, it's going to be worse. A culture, as we talked about last week, that won't take lightly the guilt they feel because of your purity. It's a deadly combination. 
Sexual immorality in and of itself combined with the power abused by the Antichrist and the power of the culture itself in debauchery and persecution. It's a physically deadly combination. It's an emotionally deadly combination. And it's a spiritually deadly combination. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. Do not think that you can play with fire and not get burned. Sexual immorality. Don't think that you can reject the culture and avoid the carnage. Especially in the great tribulation. Don't think that you can resist the beast and not get devoured. It's explicit. The great prostitute will be drunk with our blood, it says. Don't be fooled. But listen, you can at least avoid the spiritual death of this deadly combination of power and pleasure. You can at least avoid that, the most important part of death. The slow death of indulging your flesh. Like that's a fight that you can win. Then and now. And if you don't win it now, you probably won't win it then when things are even worse. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. If you're not winning the battle now against sexual immorality and the culture of debauchery that is all around and influencing short of the Antichrist, if you're not winning it now, you're definitely not going to win it later. When it's all the more widespread, all the more condoned, and combined with the abusive power of the Antichrist. Listen, if you're struggling with that, get help. Get help. There may be shame in the sin, but there's no shame in getting help. None. None. Say something to your small group leader or your Bible study group. Like mention it to one of our pastors. Call the church office. Make a note on the connection card as it comes down the row. Can somebody call me? Just that. Just, just write that down. Can somebody call me? It's that simple. As hard as it may be to ask for help and to get help, it is that simple. And we have a variety of means to help you. From marriage mentoring and biblical soul care to freedom groups and intensives. Multiple ways to help. With all the grace and the truth to go along. Full of grace and full of truth. Both and. But you have to ask. You have to realize how deadly it is. You can't be fooled any longer. You can't rationalize anymore. Don't be fooled. Because the combination of power and pleasure is going to get all the more deadly as the days approach. Next, John hears from the angel in his vision, second part of verse 6. Check it out. When I saw her, John says, referring to the great prostitute, when I saw her, I marveled greatly. Note that. I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? 
What are you doing? Why do you stand in awe? Why are you full of amazement at this prostitute? This culture? This great Babylon? Love with all of its luxury and shine and sheen and siren song and all the rest that goes along with it. Why, why, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. And then he starts with the beast. He starts to reveal what's behind the shine and the sheen. Verse 8, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless, bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. In the great tribulation, the Antichrist will rise like Babylon and amaze the world. That's the next truth that we find here. And we can't afford to miss. The Antichrist will rise like Babylon. When I was checking off on the PowerPoint on this on Friday afternoon with our graphics team, I read that on the screen. And, and for a second, I read, the Antichrist will, will rise like a baby and amaze the world. I, I mentioned that to the team, and they were like, yeah, that's appropriate too. Like a baby or like Babylon. And certainly not to make light of his power and his ill effect. The Antichrist will rise like Babylon and amaze the world. We've seen it before, haven't we? We've seen it before and we'll see the same truth again. He'll rise out of nowhere in the chaos of the great tribulation. He'll suffer some sort of setback that removes him from the scene. We saw that in chapter 13. And then he'll bounce back. He'll, he'll rise, he'll fall, and he'll rise again. Look at verse 8 again. The beast that you saw was, that is, he came out of nowhere and burst on the scene and is not, he's no longer on the scene. John is, is speaking to those in the future great tribulation, okay? The beast that you saw was, and is not, he's no longer on the scene, he's fallen, and is about to rise, about to come back from the bottomless pit, from the source of evil and darkness. Nothing short of amazing. In earthly terms, for sure, nothing short of amazing. But in verse 7, John doesn't know that, or he doesn't remember it. The only thing that occupies his attention, the only thing that occupies his vision is this vision of the prostitute causing him to marvel. When I saw her, he said, I marveled greatly. And the angel says, uh-uh, uh-uh, don't you do that. Don't you give credit where credit is not due. Don't you give glory where glory is not due. Why do you marvel, he asks. It's a rhetorical question to say that only those without the power of discernment do that. John, don't you know? Only those who marvel at sin and sinfulness are those without the power of discernment to realize what in the world they're facing and looking at. Only those without the mind of Christ would marvel at such debauchery. Only those, second part of verse 8, whose names have not been written 
in the book of life from the foundation of the world. In other words, only those whom God hasn't chosen and haven't chosen him. They marvel. They're amazed, the angel says. But you shouldn't be. We shouldn't be. We have been chosen. If you've given your life to Jesus Christ through faith and repentance, you have been chosen. And you of all people shouldn't marvel, be amazed, be enthused at the great prostitute. We have been chosen by grace through faith. We're saved. We're indwelt with the Holy Spirit, which means we should be wise to the things of the world. We should know better of all people. Don't be deceived. The Antichrist will rise like Babylon and amaze the world. Don't be deceived yourself. That's the point. He'll come out of nowhere and amaze the world, but he shouldn't amaze us. We ought to see him for who he is. We ought to see him for what he is. A fake, a sham, someone who's going to fall just as quickly as he rose. The beast that you saw, verse 8, is about to rise and go to destruction. You see the last three words there? Go to destruction. He's a fake and he's temporary. Don't be deceived. And I dare say that that's going to be a very difficult thing to keep in mind in the midst of the great tribulation when people are being martyred for their faith, when carnage is going to litter the earth, when it seems like three and a half years or whatever that terrible shortened amount of time is going to be, when it seems like it's going to go on forever and ever and it's never going to end. I think that in those days, three and a half hours is going to seem like an eternity. And it's so crucial that we impress these truths on our hearts and souls right now so as not to let them go and not forget them then. And the same would be true in the days that lead up to the great tribulation, in the birth pains that we're in. Don't be deceived. When you see a world leader burst on the scene, Suffer a major setback and then reascend. Do not marvel and do not follow. It's the second truth that we find here about the rise and fall of Babylon. Then, in verse 9, the angel further explains the mystery of all this. He said, I'll show you the mystery. I'll explain it. And now he's getting into the weeds. And boy, are they weeds. Verse 9, this calls, he says, the angel, this calls for a mind with wisdom. You think? The seven heads, he says, from verse 3, the seven heads of the beast, the Antichrist, the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated, indulged with. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, 
and it goes to destruction. And about now, I'm having flashbacks of being in an escape room. You know what an escape room is? Becky loves those things. Uh, it's one of those uh, for worse things. You know, I fulfill my wedding vows and I go. <laughs> like, this sounds like a riddle straight out of an escape room. I'd be like, just let me out. <laughs> what in the world? Verse 12, there's more. And the ten horns that you saw, so he talked about the seven heads, now is under the ten horns of this beast that he sees that is the Antichrist. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Praise Jesus for that. That much is explicitly clear. Verse 14 is the bottom line of the entire section. In fact, I would say that verse 14 is the bottom line of the entire tribulation, chapters 6 to 19. The world will pick a fight they can't win. That's it. The world will pick a fight they cannot win. Look at verse 14 again. They will make war on the lamb. That is, they'll pick a fight with Jesus, these kings of the world who are in cahoots with the Antichrist and having given over their power and their authority to him. Like, whatever you say, Antichrist, we'll do for sure. We love you. We're all about you. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. He'll win why, why, why? For he is Lord of lords and king of kings. He's almighty and he's unbeatable. And, and as if that wasn't enough for the reason why, those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Who's that? Us, the church, the people of God over all time across all the world. Called, chosen, and faithful. In other words, we're his we're his, called by God, chosen by God, and faithful to God. As precious as it gets. So of course Jesus is going to protect us and win the final victory. I will give them eternal life and they will never perish, Jesus said. And this is the fulfillment of that, or at least part of it. We may die, don't get me wrong, we may be killed, but, but that's not perishing. In fact, that's gain. To die as a follower of Jesus Christ is gain, the Bible says. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, if you don't know that by heart, you need to. To die is gain for a believer. Because it's the gateway to heaven. It's the pathway to peace. It's the doorway to Jesus. Face to face, no longer dimly. So the world can't win on two counts. The lamb is Lord and the sheep are precious. The lamb is Lord and the sheep are precious. The lamb is Lord because no one is greater. Jesus is king and rules over all. End of story, period, game over. 
And the sheep are precious because he loves us. Red, brown, yellow, black, and white. We are precious in his sight. Loved by him. Preserved by him. Protected by him. Held together under the shadow of his wing. All of which means the world will pick a fight they cannot win. Verse 14 is clear. Verses 9 to 13, not so much. But let's see if we can sort them out. When the angel says in verse 9, the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. You see it? The seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman is seated. It's most likely a first century reference to the seven hills of Rome. There are literally seven hills of Rome. Can't so much see it in our day and age except for maybe a um, topography type of a map. But in the old days, before buildings and all that sort of stuff, very clear there were seven hills of Rome and they represented seven kingdoms of the Roman Empire, these seven hills of Rome. So most likely, when John here says the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated, he's most likely referring to the seven hills of Rome, the seven kingdoms of the empire. But they are also, the angel says in verse 10, seven kings. They're kingdoms and kings, these seven heads of the beast in his vision, five of whom have fallen, that is, they're no longer in existence. One is the sixth, and the other has not yet come, the seventh. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, an eighth king, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. Now, to sort that out, you first have to realize that he's mixing metaphors. Every now and then, I will do that, probably more often than every now and then, as I'm trying to describe something that I can't really, you know, do. And Becky, you'll be like, you're mixing metaphors. I'm like, John did it? <laughs> the angel did it? There's a mixture of metaphors going on here. On the one hand, the beast itself has seven heads. We saw that starting back in chapter 13. See it reiterated, reiterated right here in this chapter, in verse 3. The beast itself has seven heads. And on the other hand, only one of those heads is the beast. We see that in verses 10 and 11. And in fact, it's an eighth at that. But he's quick to say that it's part of the seven. So there's two metaphors to describe the same thing, the Antichrist. Similar to, there's two metaphors to describe the culture of Babylon. There's the prostitute and there's the city. So if you realize that, there's two metaphors describing the same thing here, the Antichrist. If you realize that, and you keep in mind his veiled reference to ancient Rome, I think the best conclusion is this. The seven heads in verse 9 are kings and kingdoms like those of ancient Rome who represent a perfect consortium of world leaders in the great tribulation from whom the Antichrist comes, from whom the Antichrist arises. A perfect consortium of seven. Remember, he's using first century exhibits, if you will, ancient Rome, to describe something future 
in the great tribulation. And so I think that the seven heads represent a perfect consortium of worldwide leaders in the great tribulation from whom the Antichrist comes. And those are the heads. And the ten horns that you saw, verse 12, are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, a very, very short time, together with the beast, with the Antichrist. These who arises in the second half of the Great Tribulation anyway. So his time is short as it is. And then these other ten leaders who come alongside of him and, you know, laud him and honor him and all that sort of stuff. Their time is even shorter yet. One hour. These are of one mind. These ten. And they hand over their power and authority to the beast. So whereas the seven heads represent a perfect group. The ten horns, a perfect group from which the Antichrist arises, the ten horns represent a complete group. Another apocalyptic symbol, ten, in representing completeness. A complete group of world leaders in the Great Tribulation who rule and reign as puppets or proxies of the Antichrist for a very short time, one hour, and wage war on Jesus by waging war on the church, his body. Those are the ten horns, a perfect consortium and a complete group. Ten horns, just like Daniel said in his Old Testament prophecy about this. You realize that? He too spoke of ten horns, Daniel did, 600 years before Jesus ever showed up. And he too spoke of a world leader who would prevail over the saints an antichrist, a world leader who would prevail over the saints until one like a son of man would come. Daniel chapter 7, verses 25 to 27. It says, he shall speak words, he, the antichrist, shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law, that is the culture and the government. He's going to use the culture to influence the world. He shall think to change the times and the law, culture and the government, this Antichrist, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Probably three and a half years. Verse 26, but the court shall sit in judgment, that's the royal court of heaven, and his dominion, the Antichrist's dominion, shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. We're going to see it in chapter 18 and chapter 19. And the kingdom, verse 27, and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. What Daniel saw 600 years before Christ, John sees 60 years after Christ in his vision in Revelation to assure us that it's true. It's true. We need not doubt that Jesus will return and Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords, will win. It's reiterated for us in Revelation to assure us that he hasn't abandoned us. He will come. He will win. We can trust him. It's a truth, I think, that will be all the more precious in the great tribulation when the world picks a fight with us. 
So whatever you do, don't be afraid. Oh, don't be afraid. Will we walk through the valley of the shadow of death? Absolutely, God help us. Absolutely. Need we fear any evil? Absolutely not. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The rod and staff of the King of kings and Lord of lords. Our King and our Lord. The one who called us and chose us. The one who's with us and loves us, precious as we are in his sight. Afraid of what? To feel the Spirit's glad release? To pass from pain to perfect peace? The strife and strain of life to cease? Afraid of that? It's a poem written by E.H. Hamilton to commemorate the death of a man named J.W. Vinson in 1931. Vinson was a missionary at the time in China who lost his life to an armed group of bandits, about 600 of them. As he was visiting some believers 17 miles from their mission sta station, Vincent went to them to encourage them and build them up in the faith. And while he was there, these bandits came in. They took over everything. They began to sue, uh, subdue everyone. And having tied their hands behind their back, and especially that of Vincent, they began to wave their rifles in front of his face. And they said, are you afraid? Are you afraid? No, he replied. If you shoot, I go straight to heaven. They decapitated him shortly thereafter. And E.H. Hamilton went on to write another line in this poem, afraid of what? To do by death what life could not? Baptize with blood a stony plot till souls shall blossom from the spot. Afraid of that? When dying is gain? When faith shall become sight? When the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church? When the glory of God is at stake for all to bear? Will we suffer losses in the great tribulation? Absolutely. Should we be afraid? Absolutely not. It's a fight we can't lose and the world can't win. And in the midst of all of that, last but not least here, the Antichrist will turn on the prostitute and destroy her. The Antichrist will turn on the prostitute and destroy her. Look at verse 15. 
And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw in verse 1, where the prostitute is seated, are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages, the whole world, as we talked about last week. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. What? I, I thought that they were in bed with her. I thought that they loved this culture of debauchery. I mean, that's what it says. The ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will suddenly hate the prostitute. Like a man uses a woman he doesn't love and then hates her for it. Same idea. In the end, she is bitter as wormwood. The world leaders and the beast will hate the prostitute. And what's worse, they will make her desolate and naked, powerless and exposed, and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city, Babylon, that has dominion over the kings of the earth. At some point near the end of the great tribulation, the powers that be will turn on the culture of debauchery, luxury, and persecution and destroy it. Destroy it. Once again, like an evil man uses a woman he doesn't love and then hates her. They'll turn on those who perpetuated and pushed such a culture and kill them. Devour their flesh and burn them up with fire. All because they hate her, A, and B, it's God's will. God's purpose, verse 17. He'll put it in their hearts to carry out his punishment, just like he said. Babylon will drain the cup of the fury of his wrath, just like he said. The wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. God said it, and sinful men will do it. Don't be shocked. Don't be shocked. Don't be shocked at the means, and don't be shocked at the result. The means and the result. The means in that God will put it into their hearts. He will put into their hearts the very thing that they want to do. Kill and destroy. That's how God works with sinful people. He, he doesn't force them to do something that they don't want to do. He adds fuel to the fire that's already there in their sinful nature so that they do exactly what they want to do and what he wants them to do. The means here, don't be shocked at it. God puts it into their hearts to do the very thing they want to do. And don't be shocked at the result because the wages of sin, the wages of sin is always death. Always. It's just a matter of how. And most importantly, it's just a matter of what's on the other side. We are all going to die for our sin. The wages of sin is death, Romans 3. 
But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord for those who have repented and believed in Jesus Christ our Lord. The wages of sin is always death. Don't be shocked at the result. It's what's on the other side of that death physically that makes all the difference in the world. For truths about the days to come and four responses to hold fast. Let's pray. God, give us wisdom and insight, will you? That we might not be fooled or deceived. Even now, Lord, wisdom and insight that we might not be fooled or deceived. As to the things going on around us and the temptations of our heart. And God, give us hearts that trust that we might not fear. Praise you, Lord, that you've not given us a spirit of fear. Give us hearts that trust that truth more and more. And etch these truths on our soul, God, that we might not be shocked. That we might look always and only unto you. That we might stand in your grace and your precious love all the more and all the more firmly. God, help us, we pray in Jesus' name.